This podcast contains some strong themes which are not for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. John McCuffey's son Stephen was waiting for him when he got home late from his work shift on the 10th of March 2016. It was just after 2am and John said hello as he walked up the stairs to go into his bedroom. He had to be quiet because his wife... John's mum Suzanne was already asleep and had been for four hours or so. It wasn't unusual for Stephen to be awake late as he was 19 years old. He often stayed up later than his parents, his body clock worked better that way and he would sometimes sleep in a little later in the morning to catch up. John joined his wife in bed and fell asleep pretty quickly. The next morning, at around 6am, Suzanne got out of bed and began getting herself ready for the day. She began her day, readying herself for work and went to check in on Stephen. She knocked on his door but heard no answer. She began to feel an immense amount of worry. She opened Stephen's bedroom door and then saw that his bed was empty. This is Red Rum, a podcast focusing on the true victims of crime. Episode 37, Stephen McCuffey. It was extremely unlike Stephen to just leave and not let her know. She checked the front and back doors, which were both locked, and it quickly came to light that neither her husband John or their daughter had heard from Stephen and had no idea where he was. She told John that she had seen Stephen on the sofa at around 10pm. He had been watching TV and texting on his phone. John told Suzanne that he had seen Stephen before he'd headed to bed at 2.30am and given that she had woken up at 6am and hadn't heard him leave, they concluded he must have left the family home any time between 2.30 and 6am that morning. Both Suzanne and John tried calling Stephen a number of times but they weren't able to get through. The ringtone sounded but there was no answer. They knew that the situation was urgent from pretty early on because not only was it extremely out of character for Stephen to leave the house without letting his mum or dad know where he was, but he had Asperger's, a condition that can affect social interaction and non-verbal communication, amongst other things. Because of this, he found it essential to always carry a backpack with him, with earphones, CDs and usually took his phone charger too. All of those things were still in his room, so by this point, both John and Suzanne decided they needed to call the police. They told the police that he was most likely wearing a black and grey camo jacket, black low-top Nike shoes with white rubber soles and glasses. Given the young age and vulnerability of the situation, the case was taken seriously from the off, The sheriff's office released a statement on that same day. Quote, His current whereabouts are unknown. Attempts to locate him through his cell phone have been unsuccessful. The sheriff's office has been working with the family to locate Mr. McAfee. However, there has still been no contact with him and he remains missing. End quote. They described him as being six feet, one inch tall, weighing around 140 pounds and as having brown hair and brown eyes. They also stated that although he was clean-shaven when he was last seen, he had been known to have facial hair at times, and seeing as he hadn't been home, 
It was important to look out for anyone fitting Stephen's description, but also with facial hair. They also noted he had gauges in both his earlobes and a lip piercing. The police's first line of questioning obviously revolved around the parents, as, especially John, was the last person to see Stephen. But they quickly ruled them out and started looking at other possible reasons he may have left, or people he could have gone with. The evening before had been a fairly normal one. Suzanne told officers that they'd had a nice evening and there hadn't been any problems. There was no reason she could think of as to why he would have just gone off that evening. They told officers that because Stephen went to an arts high school, which had students from all over Metro Detroit, he knew people all over the area, so he could really be anywhere. Although things felt as though they were moving, the family were frustrated by the lack of leads coming in. Someone must have known something, but no one was talking. Officers discovered that Stephen's phone had last pinged the day after he had gone missing, so on the 11th of March, and it had pinged in Detroit and in Sterling Heights. Along with a huge number of friends and neighbours that they asked to help, searched the nearby area hoping to uncover some sense of where Stephen may have gone. They got hundreds of flyers printed with Stephen's photo on and a local number to call, as well as large red letters saying missing plastered across the top. The family were also asked to send a message out to Stephen, just in case he was for some reason out there watching and not wanting to return home. Suzanne assured him in the press message, quote, Just come home. We want you home. Everyone is worried. We want you home. End quote. The family also set up a Facebook page to try and help raise awareness of Stephen's disappearance with hope of finding him. That's where a lot of the information for this episode has come from, and I'll link it down below. But if you do decide to take a look, you don't have to join or anything, you can just scroll and see how it all progressed in real time from just a few days after Stephen disappeared to now. This is a solved case, and we'll get into that. Just remember though, this page is run by people close to Stephen, so bear that in mind and I would strongly advise not posting or commenting on it, but obviously that's your choice. So about a week after Stephen's disappearance, a friend of his posted on the group with a number of photos of Stephen that hadn't yet been seen by the public. They asked if anyone had any information at that time to contact the sheriff's office, as well as just generally sharing the Facebook posts. Another friend updated her Facebook status to include more photos of Stephen and captioned it that Stephen is a very creative and stylish dresser. He would change his look often. He has a great sense of humour too. The photos she included gave a better view of the person Stephen was and there was hope this would humanise him to people who had never even met him but might have seen something. Stephen's missing posters were shared everywhere physically on the streets, but also in other Facebook groups of missing people, as well as the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children. It was unlikely Stephen had gone far because he didn't own a car and didn't even have a driver's licence, so it was possible he'd either left on foot or more likely that he'd got into someone else's car and gone somewhere with them. Up to this point, we knew he didn't take any of the usual things he'd take with him like his phone charger, 
but it also came to his parents' attention that he'd even left without his cards or any cash. Crime Stoppers offered a $2,500 reward to anyone who could help reunite Stephen with his family. Quote, We had the reward implemented for more help in the investigation, along with the Macomb County Sheriff's Office, unquote. There was little progress over the next few weeks, and on the 27th of March, the Find Stephen McAfee Facebook page had a status update. Quote, Stephen is still missing. Unfortunately, we do not have any updates at this time. Please continue to share the posts and get the word out. If you have any information, please contact the Macomb County Sheriff's Department. Thank you for all your thoughts and prayers. Unquote. About a month later, with no word from Stephen and no viable leads at all, the Facebook page again shared an emotional plea. Quote, I share this every day in hope that someone will see this and speak up if they know anything. It's been 50 days since we have last seen Stephen, and this is too long to have no answers of where he may be. My family will not give up until he's home safe where he belongs. Thanks again to all our family and friends who continue to help and be there for us. Please continue to help us keep his name and face circulating and please keep praying for Stephen. No family should ever have to go through this nightmare. Unquote. The Macomb County Sheriff's Office continued to share missing posts throughout the year to keep Stephen in people's minds so that they would be on the lookout for him. By August 2016, the Crime Stoppers reward was doubled increasing to $5,000 for any information on Stephen's location, but even with that increase, no one came forward. After that increase, Sergeant Sarah Kerbs commented on the case, saying that by all accounts, Stephen leaving did seem like it could be voluntary at first, but with this much time passing, it was now looking very suspicious. She added that there was concern someone had taken advantage of him. Quote, Stephen suffers from Asperger's syndrome. He is high-functioning, however believed to be easily coerced, unquote. Then, on the 24th of August, Stephen's parents, Suzanne and John, did an interview with WXYZ TV Detroit. In the interview, the parents are clearly incredibly emotional. Suzanne says that every child she sees with brown eyes reminds her of the child she had, and that he loves music and family. She also said that he is a follower, not a leader, and her instinct was that he had followed the wrong group of people. John said there had been a number of times that he was driving down the street and seen someone who resembled Stephen. He always turns the car around and goes back to check, even though he knows it is incredibly unlikely. The really tragic and telling thing about this interview is that when I was watching it, about halfway through I realised that when Suzanne talks about Stephen, she says was instead of is. Stephen was this kind of a person. It's clear that she believes something really bad has happened to him. Well, she says at the beginning of the investigation, just two days after he'd gone missing, that he'd never go anywhere without letting them know and he'd never ever been gone for that long before. On the 27th of September... The Crime Stoppers reward was increased to $6,000 and then in mid-October a GoFundMe was set up and raised a further $1,700. In December of 2016, 
one Facebook user wrote a long post on the Stephen missing Facebook page, which brought to light something that a number of people, including the police and Stephen's family, had either begun to consider or had considered from the very beginning. That there was more than just one person involved in Stephen's disappearance. The following quote is trimmed for clarity. Quote, I feel he is not far away and those who know aren't talking. Pray that one person with some empathy and compassion will come forth. I feel two or three are involved. People always talk about what they have done, even if it is a crime. So there is no doubt two or three people know Stephen's whereabouts. End quote. The Facebook page was active throughout the following few months, including the one-year anniversary and beyond. And then, on the 27th of April 2017, a number of press reported that investigators had been led to a scene eight miles away from Stephen's house. It was reported that an unknown person came to the police station, claiming they had some information about a homicide. It soon became clear that the unknown person who had come to report this information was a friend of a woman called Yvette Renee MacDonald. The unknown person was a friend of Yvette's and had come into the police station with her father the previous day on the 26th of April. The friend claimed that one evening a few weeks earlier, when the two of them were alone, Yvette revealed that she knew what had happened to Stephen. Yvette had said that her ex-boyfriend a man called Andrew Fiacco, had killed Stephen by shooting him and then she had helped him to bury Stephen's body. Yvette had been interviewed about the case back in September of 2016, but denied any knowledge of it. The day after this information came to light, investigators searched an abandoned property in Bruce Township, as well as Yvette's boyfriend's house in Ray Township. Behind Andrew's house, Investigators dug up an area where they discovered a skull and some other bones. At the abandoned property in Bruce Township, investigators found a lower jawbone and in the same area, dug up some clothing that looked as though it may match descriptions of Stephen's clothing. It wasn't long before the bones were identified as being the remains of Stephen McCuffey. Andrew had previously been questioned about Stephen's disappearance not simply because he was from the same area as Stephen, but because they were friends. Good enough friends where Stephen would have trusted Andrew and willingly gone with him. Yvette was arrested and taken in for questioning too. She was charged with accessory after the fact to a felony, mutilation of a dead body, and lying to a police officer. She eventually told investigators that Andrew had killed Stephen alone, and then around a month later, had showed her the body. She said they had both then taken an axe from Andrew's house and cut the body in half so it was easier to dispose of. They had placed the remains into a duffel bag and then taken it to Andrew's house, where they both buried it in the back garden. She also said that she had burned the duffel bag they used soon after this. Officers had the remains of Stephen, Yvette's statement, and Andrew in custody, He had been charged with first-degree murder, mutilation of a dead body, lying to a police officer and a felony firearms violation. But investigators still didn't have a motive. The reason behind why Andrew, an acquaintance and by all understanding a friend of Stevens, would choose one evening to kill him remained a mystery. 
Whilst Andrew was in custody, he told officers that he had met up with Stephen on the night he disappeared, but he just sold him some weed and then dropped him off at his house afterwards. When pushed by detectives, he said that's all he remembered. Obviously, the detectives didn't believe him and pushed, asking why he didn't remember. One asked if he was high, to which Andrew replied no, but he was on prescription medication. Detectives told Andrew that more evidence had come to light and they knew everything. All they needed from him was honesty. One detective then asked what would happen if they brought an excavator over to Andrew's back garden. It was clear to Andrew at this point that detectives weren't bluffing. They knew something and there was no way out of the interrogation room without revealing the details of that night. When they asked Andrew to explain the events of the night, he said that Stephen FaceTimed him to ask him for some weed and that he agreed and said he'd come and pick him up. He met Stephen down at the end of the street and Stephen got into his car. Andrew then drove him to a nearby wooded area. He mentioned at this point that because he'd sold weed in the past to some really, in his words, shitty people, he decided to bring his brother's gun with him. He mentioned he had swiped it without his brother knowing one morning whilst his brother's girlfriend was cleaning his room. Andrew also said that he was scared of Stephen. From what detectives knew about Stephen from his family, friends and anyone they'd spoken to that knew him, it was extremely out of character for Stephen to be any kind of scary. They obviously didn't believe Andrew and asked why he was scared of Stephen. Andrew claimed that a month or two before the murder, Stephen had attacked Andrew with a knife. He went on to say that you could never tell with Stephen. He could go off at anything, even a phone call from his dad when they were hanging out. When I heard that sentence, when they were hanging out, that's the moment I realised that this wasn't just a kind of know-someone-sell-a-bit-of-weed thing. This was a friendship. Stephen had trusted that Andrew was his friend. They used to hang out and had actually been friends since early childhood. One of the detectives then asked if Andrew was so scared of Stephen, then why did he go to meet him that night? To which Andrew simply stated he needed the money. After he picked Stephen up, he says they drove to a nearby wooded area and got out of the car. He alleged that then Stephen was walking on the right side of him and seemed agitated. The two were walking along when Stephen said he wouldn't give Andrew the money for the weed. Then, out of nowhere, Stephen apparently began attacking him and tackled him to the ground. He says the two wrestled and Stephen went to grab the gun from Andrew's holster. He said he managed to distract Stephen to the point where he gained control and began choking him. He then managed to get the gun back and within that struggle, the gun just went off. The gun was cocked, so it easily just went off. He then got up and ran away. If this was a true series of events, it would fail to explain why Stephen had been shot three times. It also didn't explain why Stephen, a relatively calm, non-violent or aggressive individual with no explainable motive, would just attack Andrew out of the blue. After further questioning, Andrew finally admits that one round was fired and then some more. He said the gun went off and he immediately knew Stephen was dead. 
He admitted to then firing two more shots because he was, quote, scared. Detectives didn't believe for a second that Andrew had been attacked in an unprovoked ambush by Stephen. They continued questioning him and began to unveil more detail that puts into question the authenticity of what Andrew had just said. Andrew again admitted that he shot Stephen, but he realised afterwards that he couldn't just leave him there. He then acknowledged that he couldn't move a full body himself, so after a few weeks of thinking about what to do, he asked his then-girlfriend Yvette to help him. He told her what had happened and that it was an accident, and then the two of them went back to where Stephen's body was. Andrew said that he decided to move Stephen's body because he apparently couldn't leave his friend like that. He and Yvette arrived in the wooded area where Stephen's body still lay, and he brought out an axe. He knew that Stephen's body would be too big to transport as it was, but at the last minute, he says, he realised he wasn't going to be able to dismember Stephen's body. He says that Yvette agreed to do it, and swung the axe downwards to cut it in half. He goes on to repeat that he had nothing to do with the dismemberment, which detectives obviously found hard to believe. He and Yvette then put the remains into a black duffel bag and took one handle each to carry it back to the car. They then placed the bag in the car boot and drove back to Andrew's house. The couple weren't sure what to do at this point, so Andrew admitted that they just left the bag with Stephen's remains in it, in the car boot. A little while later, they did decide to bury the remains. They both grabbed shovels and began digging round the back of the house. Detectives then asked Andrew to describe exactly where the couple dug, presumably so that they could then go and excavate the back garden in the correct area. It turned out, Andrew would be accompanying them, dressed in his prison-issued jumpsuit, and would help them find the exact spot where Stephen's remains were buried. Andrew also admitted that they only buried approximately half of Stephen's remains in his back garden and took most of the rest of him to an abandoned house where they also dug a hole and buried him. He sounded a little bit proud when he said that he brought the remains back to his house because he wanted to give Stephen a proper burial. It's clear this is utter BS and Andrew's attempts at appearing remorseful aren't fooling any of the detectives in the room. I did just want to say, actually, about the detectives. I've seen a video of the interrogation and there are a number of moments when Andrew clearly asks for a lawyer, but detectives deflect and push him to speak on what actually happened that night. In my opinion, this is an extremely risky tactic and... To be honest, it's just a bit stupid. The risk they run there is that when the case goes to trial, it would be very easy for the defence to outline the fact that Andrew asked for a lawyer no less than four or five times and they then didn't provide one. I've seen confessions get thrown out of court for a lot less than that and then they're useless, they can't be used in the trial. It's obvious that Andrew is guilty, there's so much evidence and even his confession just bulks up an already pretty sturdy case but nothing is definite in a trial and this case really could have been messed up because of the officer's actions in not acknowledging Andrew's Sixth Amendment. The Sixth Amendment is incredibly important in guaranteeing a right to a fair trial. 
it's in place in order to protect you against having your rights violated by those who are in positions of authority and prevents people being taken advantage of. It's pretty basic policing and we have seen cases on Red Run Patreon of cases being thrown out because of simple police failures like not reading Miranda rights. Luckily, this confession was able to be used in trial, although I'm not really sure how, but it's very fortunate it was because, as I've mentioned, there are a lot of things that Andrew has been saying to incriminate himself and there are more to come. After both he and Yvette had buried Stephen's remains, they then burned the duffel bag they'd been using and detectives asked Andrew if he'd stolen anything from Stephen before or after he was dead and Andrew said not beforehand, but afterwards he did take his digital watch. One of the detectives then asked if he took it as a souvenir to remember him, to which Andrew said yes. Officers had a huge amount of circumstantial evidence and a signed statement, and on discovery of Stephen's remains, it was clear to everyone involved that Andrew had been the sole perpetrator in the murder, and Yvette had helped him to carry out the subsequent cover-up. Officers needed more information from Yvette and questioned her about her whole relationship and past with both Andrew and Stephen. She told officers that she'd met Andrew when she was 15 years old at high school and she soon moved into Andrew's parents' house. She was working at a restaurant and attending Macomb Community College at the time. She met Stephen through Andrew and was informed that they'd been friends since they were really young. Yvette told police that she was afraid of Andrew. He allegedly showed her a dead body and told her that he was part of a mafia and that he was the tech guy. His work included taking care of security cameras as well as working as a hitman and he had killed people before. He added that Yvette and her family were protected as long as she was with him. He told her they were under a contract called a protection tract. He also said that if she ever left him, she and her family would be killed. He told Yvette that Stephen had seen something he wasn't supposed to, to do with the mafia, so he had to kill him. In April 2016, Yvette had a car but no driver's licence as it was suspended at the time for driving past curfew. Andrew took her ID and said that he'd leave it at the crime scene along with some of her hair if she ever went to police. Andrew had previously accused Yvette of sleeping with Stephen. One time he drove her to Stephen's house. They pulled up outside on the street. Andrew knocked on the door and asked one of Stephen's family members if they'd ever seen Yvette before, and they said no. The two then left, and Andrew threw her purse at her and drove away. A few minutes later, he returned and demanded she get back in the car. On the 10th of March 2016... Yvette was living with Andrew. The pair had gotten into an argument, again about Stephen, and another argument about the fact Yvette was going to Florida to visit a friend. Exhausted from the arguing, Yvette went to sleep around 9pm. She woke up around 2am and noticed Andrew wasn't next to her. She checked the garage and he wasn't there. She went back to sleep and woke up about 8am and Andrew was back. When she asked him where he'd been, he told her he went to pick up Stephen and they hung out at a gas station for a little while before he then dropped him back home. When Yvette returned from Florida and learnt of Stephen's disappearance being the same night Andrew had seen him, he said that wasn't true 
She asked a number of times, but couldn't ask too often because she was worried about coming across as caring too much. Andrew asked how she would feel if Yvette learned that Stephen was dead. After she said it would be upsetting and she would feel bad, he then told her that he had killed Stephen. He told her Stephen had seen something on Andrew's phone relating to the mafia and he wasn't allowed to see it, so that's why he had been killed. Yvette didn't believe him and told him that. Andrew became angry at this and said he'd show her. And a few days later, Andrew told Yvette they were going to drive to Stephen's body. After a few wrong turns and a period of searching, Andrew eventually directed Yvette to an area of secluded woodland a little off the road. He pulled out his brother's gun and told her to go ahead and not look back. At this point, Yvette testified that she feared for her life and only when... At this point, Yvette testified that she feared for her life and only went along to this area because she was being held at gunpoint. The pair arrived at the wooded area and Yvette stopped in her tracks. She saw a shoe. Andrew then told her to go towards it. As she did, she saw a body face up lying on the ground. Andrew kept telling her she needed to look at it and she noticed one of Stephen's hands was black and pruned. Andrew then told her that because she'd seen the body and the mafia knew, she had to help him dispose of it. The pair left but returned soon after with an axe and a duffel bag. Yvette testified that Andrew forced her to help dismember Stephen's body, but after one swing, Andrew became frustrated that she couldn't do any more, so took the axe off her and continued himself. He then placed the body parts into the trunk of Yvette's car. Stephen's dismembered body sat in that trunk for over a month. Andrew told her that she needed to finish the job because the mafia had a protection contract on her and if she didn't, she wouldn't be protected. The pair then went to a local home depot and bought a bucket and quick cement. They then buried parts of Stephen's body in Andrew's back garden and started a fire in a fire pit, which is when they burned the duffel bag. As we know... Andrew kept Stephen's watch after he died. He took it home to the house he shared with his then-girlfriend Yvette. He told Yvette that the watch beeped at the same time every single night, and that was the time that Andrew had died. Yvette was the final witness called to the stand by the prosecution, and because she had already pleaded guilty to mutilation of a body and accessory after the fact, she was able to testify at Andrew Fiacco's trial. Yvette was charged with disinterment, a 10-year felony, accessory after the fact, a 5-year felony, and lying to police, a 4-year felony. As part of her guilty plea, Yvette was sentenced to just one year of prison time for her part in the crime and was also informed that she would be eligible for the Homes Youthful Trainee Act, or HYTA, which allows her a clean record provided she follows the court's rules. This whole case is tragic, but details that emerged at the trial showed that Andrew and Stephen had known each other since they were just five years old. Stephen's mother, Suzanne, said that they lived very close to each other when they were little, in fact, in the same neighbourhood. It was clear from early on that Suzanne was suspicious of Andrew from day one. The day after Stephen had gone missing, the 11th of March, Suzanne and John were able to access Stephen's phone records on a computer. 
they figured they may be able to gain some information about who had been contacting Stephen the few days before he disappeared. One number that popped up on Recently Contacted was a number Suzanne recognised and her heart sank. She had told Stephen he wasn't to contact or see Andrew anymore. The exact details as to why that is aren't clear, but there was an allegation that Suzanne made whilst on the witness stand that leads us to a pretty clear conclusion as to why she didn't want Andrew around. When the defence asked Suzanne if she was aware if Andrew and Stephen had had a sexual relationship, she said no, other than the rape. She testified, quote, Stephen told me Andrew raped him, end quote. There's very little information on this because, at the time, the judge ruled that questions about sexual orientation were not relevant or allowed, and the jury was told to disregard some of what was said. That comment obviously isn't about sexual orientation, it's about sexual assault, a rape. So I'm not sure if there was a more detailed testimony that stated more or what, but either way, the trial quickly moved on to the conversations Andrew and Suzanne had had over text message following Stephen's disappearance. A few evenings after Stephen's disappearance, and after John and Suzanne had Stephen's phone records, Suzanne texted Andrew asking if he'd been contacted by Stephen at all because they hadn't heard from him and his phone was off. Andrew told Suzanne that yes, he had answered a FaceTime from Stephen early on the morning of the 10th of September. He said he then got a phone call from Stephen where he said, quote, you just drove past me. Andrew then drove back, said hi, gave Stephen a high five and explained that they couldn't talk anymore. He also said that Stephen needed to check in with his mum and let her know what was going on. But Suzanne didn't believe this for a minute. She then texted Andrew, quote, Andrew, you told me the other day when I asked you that you had not talked to him. We need to know if you know anything. He could be in serious danger. We don't think you are telling us all that you know. We've tried to reach him and have waited before getting the police involved, thinking he will come home, end quote. Andrew replied, saying that he did receive more phone calls from Stephen, but in respect to Suzanne, screened them and text Stephen that he needed to respect his mother's decision. Suzanne wasn't buying any of it. She replied, quote, Andrew cut the bullshit. You know the reason you and him were not allowed to hang. This is a serious matter, and if you know anything, we will find out. We are giving you the opportunity to tell us first. Andrew, if you know anything, we will find out. End quote. Andrew replied, quote, I'm sorry if you don't believe me because of my past, Mrs. McAfee. I'm sorry for all the wrong I did with Stephen. I sincerely and genuinely do care about your son's well-being. I remember all the dumb, irresponsible decisions he made in the past. All I can say, honestly, is I hope he's okay and he comes home. It's not my fault that you don't know where he is and you're trying to put it on me. This isn't fair on me and my friends and my family because I have company over because I'm sitting here on my phone talking to you. Sorry, I have to go. I will not be rude to my friends and girlfriend. End quote. Then, just a couple of days later, on the 14th of March, Andrew had written a post on an article about Stephen's disappearance on the Click on Detroit website. Quote, This guy right here was my best friend in the entire world. We had our ups and downs, but we grew up as neighbourhood friends. We'd get into an argument during the day and we'd stop playing and go home. 
An hour later, either one of us would go round to the other's house and apologise and make up and hug it out. He will always be my best friend to me. Not even my best friend. He is family to me. He's like a brother to me. Praying to the Lord he is safe and returns home soon. And then two days later, wrote, I wish I knew where he was. I would have told authorities already. He had a problem checking in with his parents and even me. He was very quiet and kept to himself a lot, actually. I gave him fatherly lectures about how he needs to check in with his parents when he goes somewhere or does something. Never did he do any of those things, though. I miss him so much. Please come home, brother. We all miss you very much. Then, when Suzanne checked Andrew's Facebook, she realised that any and all photos of Stephen or Stephen and Andrew had been deleted off of Andrew's Facebook page. During Andrew's trial, his defence tried to argue that he wasn't of sound mind. His mother was brought in to testify that Andrew had suffered with mental illness that could have contributed to the decisions he made in killing Stephen. I don't know what this woman was thinking, but in 2019 alone, 51.5 million adults in the US experienced mental illness, and that's just the reported number, and I am pretty sure 51.5 million people didn't go out and murder a friend. Also, it's incredibly clear that Andrew attempted to cover up the murder and even evidence of premeditation, so I'm not sure what his mother thought this would actually achieve. The defence even tried to use Stephen's Asperger's as a reason as to why he may have been agitated and supposedly attacked Andrew, which I call BS on. Thankfully, there was plenty of evidence that led to a vague understanding of what happened that night. It became clear that Andrew and Stephen had been in contact all night, and at around 3am, Andrew picked Stephen up from the street outside his house. The pair then drove to the remote spot where the murder actually took place at around 4.15am. Because Andrew is the only person who was there on the night of the murder, we will probably never know the actual events of what happened, other than what we've gathered from his testimony and events. We do know that when Andrew got out of the car, he told Stephen to leave his phone in the car whilst they went down the secluded route in that wooded area. Further evidence of premeditation. Because some of Stephen's bones were missing, even after both burial sites and the murder site were excavated, it's difficult to know the exact order or amount of shots that were fired. But there is evidence that the fatal shot was actually to the head and that the trajectory was from upwards through the head, as well as another shot in the back of the head. The back of the head. How Andrew thinks he can try and claim self-defence or not of sound mind is pretty bold and clearly not the truth. Andrew Fiacco was sentenced to 50 to 70 years. Stephen's life was suddenly cut short at the hands of Andrew Fiacco, a person who used his charm to deceive Stephen into thinking He would be doing something fun that night, like a wolf in sheep's clothing. I am Stephen's mother. I cannot curl up into a ball in a corner and not continue to protect him. I will continue to love and protect him, 
even if he is no longer with us. Red Rum is written and presented by Grace Cordell. It's produced by Russ Clark and Grace Cordell. Music and sound design by Russ Clark. Title music by Benjamin James.